Turn in your Bibles to Acts 22, verses 6 through 22. We're picking up where we left off in June uh, now uh, in Acts uh, 22. This is the second part of a sermon of uh, the testimony of a changed life, that being the life of the Apostle Paul. So his conversion raises the question, how does one make this transition from being a zealous, devout, socially elite, orthodox Jew who is a violent opponent of Christianity to being the chief spokesman of the church, its most important missionary, its most brilliant theologian, and its most capable biblical scholar. And, and it raises uh, beyond that the question of how does, how does anybody become a Christian? You, you look around in our society today and so many people are indifferent or they're irreligious or relativistic or materialistic or hedonistic. And uh, how do these people get converted and become serious Christians? And the answer ultimately is that it takes place through an encounter with Jesus Christ. So in the book of Acts, three times we have the record of the Apostle Paul's encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. First in chapter 9, it'll follow again in chapter 26, and here in chapter uh, 22. Uh, Most of us will will not have a Damascus Road type of uh, encounter, uh, but that encounter still takes place today. How? By the Holy Spirit working through Holy Scripture. Holy Spirit plus Holy Scripture, that leads to uh, an existential, experiential, living encounter uh, with the risen Christ. So in verses 3 through 5, which we looked at last time, we I saw the Apostle Paul recounting his uh, Orthodox Jewish upbringing uh, and his role in persecuting Christians as an illustration of his zeal for his ancestral religion. And he described as well the reason for his journey to Damascus, which was to arrest and to punish Christians. So in verses 6 through 22, our text for today, we look at the encounter itself which I believe is encouraging to us for a number of different reasons. But um, among the most important of those reasons is that it provides an illustration of the fact that Christ can convert anyone, even the most unlikely of persons, even somebody that we might consider to be far gone in in terms of uh, worldly behavior, somebody who is utterly enthralled with the things of the flesh. That individual can be converted, and the Apostle Paul's evidence of this Uh, that God's grace in Christ can reach to anyone, anywhere, at any time by the Holy Spirit working through the gospel message to bring about an encounter uh, with the the risen and ascended Christ. So verses 6 through 11, we want to look at the encounter with Christ himself. Beginning at verse 6, the Apostle Paul is explaining now in his uh, his, uh, testimony as he is giving a uh, defense uh, of himself Before the court in Jerusalem, he says, And I was on my way and uh, drew near to Damascus. Damascus is about 140 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem. Uh, About noon, a great light. All right, it was noon. That that means the sun was full, bright, and hot. And yet here's a light that uh, outshines even the sun. So it is bright even in comparison with the brightness of of midday. As it were, a blinding light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Uh, appreciate how stunning this moment had to be for the Apostle Paul. Basically, his life as he knew it is now over. He will turn 180 degrees from the direction in which his whole life has been headed up, up to this point. Uh, he's, he's going to have to rethink his entire theology. He's going to ha rethink his entire understanding of the Bible. He's going to be re rejected by his family, uh, family and, and friends. His life, as he has known it, is going to uh, head now in an entirely different direction, the opposite direction. He's on the road to persecute Christians, and he will, from this point forward, become a servant of Christ and his church. His life will change in an instant. Uh, a few years ago, I read a book written by uh, Robert Woodruff and his wife. Uh, very happily married man with four children who succeeded Peter Jennings as the host of World News Tonight. And on January 29th of 2006, uh, the vehicle the convoy that he was running with uh, ran over an IED, basically a mine, and uh, blew up, uh, nearly killing him. He spent 36 days in a coma. He sustained a, a brain uh, injury. Part of his skull had to be removed. Uh, slow process of, uh, of uh, recovery uh, then went on for months and even years, some symptoms remaining. Uh, they co-authored the book, the title of it, In an Instant. In an instant. This is the kind of thing that can happen. Your, your whole life can just turn on a dime. And that's what happened to Robert Woodruff. That, that, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. From, from this point forward, his uh, academic achievements, they don't mean anything. He is a leading a young rabbi of his day. He's advanced beyond all of his countrymen, he says in, in Galatians chapter 1. As to the law, he had lived as it were perfectly. So he was a highly esteemed. And all of his uh, priorities now are going to change. His outlook is going to change. His perspective is going to change. Everything for him is changing in an instant. When he receives this stunning news, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, that you are daring to persecute. Uh, verse 9, now those who were with him saw the light but did not understand. Uh, we learn from, uh, from verse 11 in this passage uh, that, uh, that he was blinded by that light and three days he, will, he neither eats nor drinks and he will be in darkness contemplating the meaning of his life and the direction of his life and his, his outlook on life and his perspective and his priorities and his theology and how he understands the Bible uh, and, and, and all of the rest. Three days, total darkness. But his response is, uh, is, is immediate. He said, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? He's already saying in words that uh, we would do well to make our own Whatever you want me to do, I am going to do. His response is immediate. He was changed in an instant. He has a new heart. He has a new outlook. He is born again by this encounter. He is a new man. What shall I do? I'm willing to do whatever you ask me to do. I'm willing to go wherever you send me. I'm, 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 I want to believe everything you teach me. 
and I want to obey everything that you command me. What shall I do? This, is, this should be the cry of every Christian. Lord, what do you want me to do? Whatever it is, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to go wherever you want to send me. I'm going to obey whatever you command me. I'm going to believe everything that you teach me in your word. What shall I do? What do you want to do my, with my life? I surrender it. I give it over to you. It is yours to do with what you want. The way the Apostle Paul himself will put it later in 1 Corinthians is, you are not your own. You become a Christian, you no longer are your own person. You've been bought with a price. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I, I, I lost my life. And Jesus, Jesus taught us this, didn't he? If you want to cling to your life, you lose it. You lose your life for his sake, that's when you really find it. That's when you really find meaning. That's when you're really living life as it was meant to be lived. Is when you lose your life, you hand it over to God, you surrender it to his will. Why does the Apostle Paul do this? Because he's encountered Christ. He's had this living, dynamic encounter. What shall I do? He's humbled, he's broken, he's surrendered. Verse 11. Uh, the picture is, becomes more stark as you go along. What shall I do? Uh, uh, second half of, of verse 10, And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. You're not your own man anymore, Paul. You, uh, things are going to be appointed for you to do. Those are the things that you will do. And again, this, this is true of every Christian. What has God appointed for me to do? What, what has he set before me as my tasks in life, as the, the direction in which I'm to head, and, and the, the outlook that I'm to embrace, and the priorities that I'm to have for myself and for my family? You will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Certainly that had a unique application in the Apostle Paul's life, and we'll look at that in a moment, but it's true for everyone else as well. We, we, we surrender our autonomy. This is what people fear about becoming a Christian. I want to captain my own ship. I want, I want to be in charge of my own life. And what we see here is, oh, no, you surrender that autonomy. You surrender that right to determine your own direction. You place your hands into the hands of Christ, and you say, Lord, what will you have me to do? In verse 11, it says, I could not see because of the blindness of that light. I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. I think it's almost proverbial. The Apostle Paul being led by the hand. Uh, by who? By nobodies. Here he is. He's, he's this elite young rabbi. He's this brilliant biblical theologian. He's a rising star in Judaism. He doesn't need to be led by the hand by anyone else. He knows everything that needs to be known. He's an expert. He's, he's, he's among the elite. He, he's socially among the elite. And yet, he's now being and willing to be led by the hand by someone else. Led by the hand in, in the direction that, that God would have a person go. And, and these people that are leading him by the hand, they're not anything like his social equals. They're, in, they're his inferiors, if you want to put it that way. I've mentioned uh, probably too many times the severe injury that I sustained uh, when I was in high school and it resulted in being in a body cast for five months in a hospital bed, uh, getting out, re-breaking it, and so forth. Very, very severe, missed the entire 10th grade year. Um, somebody asked me recently, what was the most difficult part of that? And the answer was, is an easy one. The most difficult part was when I got back 
on the basketball court or the baseball diamond or the football field, I now was dominated by people that I once ran circles around. People that I used to dominate were now dominating me. I couldn't compete with them anymore. That was very difficult for a 15, 16-year-old boy to take. And I just draw the analogy between that and the Apostle Paul now, this elite, brilliant, one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, one of the greatest men who have ever lived, is now like a child. He's like a child being led by the hand in the direction that he is to go humbled and broken before God and yet willing to be, to be led. Now, not everybody has this kind of a crisis conversion. We understand that. There's an encounter here. Not everybody has it in the form of a crisis. Uh, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, Luke 1.15. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that he was trusting in God while he was still a nursing infant. Uh, that's uh, Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. So not everybody has a crisis conversion, but still, we all must encounter the risen Christ. And it's, it's not so much a question of when did that happen. I mean, we, we, we congratulate those who were able to say that they, they don't recall ever a day when they didn't believe in Christ. You know, that, that would be my own testimony. I don't have, I don't have a conversion story. As far as I know, I always believed. I always knew I was a sinner. Always knew I needed Christ. Always believed the Bible was true. That, that's as far back as my memory goes. It's not a question of when did it happen and describe the event. The, the question is the living reality right now. Do, do, do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know that you are lost and, and under the judgment of God apart from Christ? Have you repented of your sin and turned to Christ and received him as Savior and Lord? That's the question. Have you had the kind of encounter with gospel truth that has led to your surrender to Christ, your submission to him, your receiving of the forgiveness of sins, and along with that, uh, the, the receiving of his lordship over your life. Are you willing to be led by the hand, as it were, like you were a child, even though you might be brilliant? Even though you might be a socially superior people to others, even though you may be rich and powerful, uh, are you willing to be led by the hand, as it were, by the, the, the Holy Spirit working through the ministry of the Word, being led into, into that, that, uh, that new outlook that, uh, that arises from the new heart, the new outlook, the new perspectives, the new priorities, the new convictions that, uh, that result. So there's this encounter with Jesus Christ. But remember as well, this is a testimony. The Apostle Paul is uh, before a curious but hostile crowd giving an account of himself, defending himself. And all of us should have some testimony. We are all, 1 Peter 3.15, to be able to give an account of the hope that is within us. And that would be true whether we've been brought up in a Christian home, and as far as we know, we always believed, and, or whether or not uh, we were converted as adults. What is it that we can say? Well, we can say to anyone, you know what? I'm a Christian. And God has showed me my sin. 
And he has showed me the way of forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. I've surrendered my life to him. He is my Lord. I want to live according to his word. He's given me peace and joy and contentment. He has led me by the hand into the life that I'm living under his lordship and authority. And secondly, we see this call to serve in verses 12 through Uh, 21. Immediately upon the Apostle Paul's conversion, he receives a call. And there's really two parts to it. There's the special call and then the ordinary call. Uh, So picking up at verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law. Paul knows his audience and he, you know, he targets. He's in in front of a bunch of Orthodox Jews. And so what does he say? Well, this Ananias now, he, he was a devout man according to the law that you so honor. You know, he kept the law. He's well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. He's not some renegade. He's not some heretic. He's not some apostate. He's he's orthodox. He's sound. He's a believer. Though he's a Christian. He came to me, standing by me, said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very hour, I received my sight, and I, I, I saw him. And he said, and here comes the special call, The God of our fathers. Again, consider the audience. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's the God that uh, you you will be serving, Paul. It's the same God that you've been um, serving up all of your life as you've trained to be a rabbi. In other words, there's continuity between the Judaism in which you were reared and the Christianity to which you have now been called. You're not not adopting a different religion. You're not not deviating from uh, the Old Testament. No, you're you're, you're going to preach and teach in a manner that is consistent with that message of the Old Testament, that fulfills that message of the Old Testament, that is the embodiment of the truth of that Old Testament. So the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. There's a series of three infinitives here. Appointed you to do what? To know his will, to see the righteous one with the eye of faith, as it were, and to hear a voice from heaven. Now, this, this is uh, his e- extraordinary call, because not everyone is called, like the Apostle Paul was, uh, to, to, to know his will and to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. In other words, it's de- direct self-revelation. See, Paul, you are being given uh, unique revelation because you're going to be an agent of revelation. It's through you that I will speak. This is unique to you. This is not the calling of an ordinary Christian. Verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So he received this direct revelation that's unique to the apostle Paul. Doesn't have so much to do with us, just reassures us that what he wrote and what he taught and what he preached, he got from God. didn't make it up. Uh, this is what he says about his unique experience, 2 Corinthians 12, beginning at uh, verse 2. He says, I know a man, speaking of himself, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Does that happen to all of us? No, it doesn't. Whether in body or out of body, I do not know, but God knows. He continues, I know that this man was caught up into paradise, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So there's the uniqueness. There's the special 
revelation that the Apostle Paul received that, that no one else does. Why? Well, he's an agent of revelation because he's going to be an agent of mission. He's going to take the message of the gospel. And so he was given unique insights, unique, unique gifts, unique powers uh, because of the distinctive role that he would play in the history of redemption. This point in time, the apostolic age. But then there's also this ordinary calling for all that uh, exalted status and mission and experience that, that, uh, that he's being told about. Verse 16, and, and now why do you wait? That's a, that's a good word for many of us, I think. Why do you wait? Why do you delay? Why are you not professing your faith in Christ? Why are you not being baptized? Why are you not joining the church? Why are you not severing your ties to that ungodly lifestyle that you are engaged in? Why are you not turning away from those sins? Why are you not uh, repenting of those, those sins? Why do you continue in the, on the path that you were walking when you know it's not right, when you know it's wrong, when you know it, God condemns it, when you know there's a judgment day coming? Uh, why don't you receive this message of forgiveness and pardon and grace that you can receive right now. So why do you wait? Rise and what? Be baptized and wash away your sins. Notice the close connection between baptized and wash away. The sign of baptism and the thing signified washing away of sin. The two are closely associated. We don't want to say there's a relationship of causation, but there is an association here. That underscores the importance of being baptized. If you're a Christian, what do you do? You get baptized. What's baptism? It's the initiatory or the uh, right of admission for the Christian church. What's the apostle doing? He's joining the church. So you believe and you're baptized and you join the church. Even if you're an apostle, even if you're going to be accepted and received into the third heaven and receive these extraordinary revelations, yet, on the other hand, Paul and every other believer, you're an ordinary Christian. What's that mean? It means you get baptized and you join the church. I mean, just like every other church, uh, every other Christian, you join the church. Uh, well, there are a bunch of hypocrites there. Yeah, you, still you join the church. Uh, yeah, but I don't know anybody. Still, you join the church. You associate with the other believers. You're part of the community of faith. You're not exempt from that uh, responsibility, even if you are the Apostle Paul and an agent of revelation. So he's baptized, and he, by doing so, he is admitted into the fellowship of the church, calling on his name, that is, calling upon the name of Christ. So all those who are converted, they get baptized. They join the church, and, and, and these are further signs of the transformation, the new life, the new person, the new heart of the Apostle Paul. Verse 17, uh, remember, they, the, the crowd is still listening to the Apostle Paul as he's preaching. When I returned to uh, Jerusalem. This is three years after what he has just been describing. So he's on the Damascus Road, encounter with Christ. When I had returned to Jerusalem, from which he had departed to go to Damascus, now he returns three years later. I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance. And I saw him, Christ, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony 
about me. He's being warned by Christ himself about the coming persecution. So the Apostle Paul does what we do. The Apostle Paul's not Jesus. He's not perfect. So he does what we do. What's that? He argues. He argues with God. It's foolish, of course, but that's what he does because that's what we do. And I said, Lord, Lord, uh, look at this more logically, the way I'm looking at it. They themselves know that I, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. And when the, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by. I was right there and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed them. I was an accomplice in the, the lynching, the murder of Stephen. Uh, and what's the point? In other words, I have credibility, don't I? I mean, they know what I was. They can see the transformation of my life. Don't send me away somewhere else because think of the impact that I can have. Think of all the good that I can do right here because, because of my background and because everybody knows who I am because I was this vehement, violent a, a rabbi persecuting Christians and they'll be able to see the radical transformation that's taken place and I will be so much more effective here and believable here. During the Second World War, the commander of the entire Pacific fleet was a man named Chester Nimitz. He was brought up in Fredericksburg, Texas, in a Lutheran, German-speaking church, in a German-speaking family. He was fluent in German. So where did the United States military send him? To the Pacific where his German would be virtually useless. Uh, there's something of that here with the Apostle Paul. You know, Nimitz, I, I know German. I should be in the Atlantic. I should, I should be in, 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 in the West. Uh, no, we're going to send you to the Pacific. This is what Paul is saying. I, 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 I'm known here. I could be so effective here. Don't, don't send me outside of Jerusalem. And the, God is saying to him, oh, no, no, no. I have other plans for you. Verse 20. One And he said to, him, to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's God's plan. God's plan is not Paul's plan. Paul's plan was to be in Jerusalem. God's plan, I'm sending you away. Who knows best? Who's wiser about this? Uh, do, does God know more than we do? Does he have a better plan than we have? Does he know what he's doing? Again, this is us. This is, this is what we do. We, this is, these are the questions that we raise. We think, um, you know, why am I not uh, being led in this direction? Why am I not being given this opportunity? Why, why did this door not open for me? This is where I could be so effective. This is where I could really make an impact. This is where I could do something. No, no, no. Not that way. This way. What is this call? Well, we find out in verse 22, it's a call to suffer because immediately all hell, literally all hell, breaks loose. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They'd all been quiet up to this point. He'd invoked the name of Jesus. He talked about his prayers and visions in their temple. He'd even mentioned Stephen's martyrdom and their culpability for that. They were quiet the whole time. The word Gentiles comes out of his mouth and they explode in rage. And what the Apostle Paul 
is saying is effectively this, that, um, that because they are rejecting the gospel message, God is turning from them to the Gentiles. He is rejecting those who reject him, and he is directing all of his attention now to the Gentiles. And those Gentiles are going to be, become a part of the people of God apart from the institutions and the practices of Judaism. And they're not going to need to perform all of the cleansing rites or, or observe the, the holy days. In other words, they are not going to be, get close to God as mediated by Judaism. They're going to have a direct relationship with God through Christ. This is what sparks this rage. It's, a, it's as though uh, those uh, who, who practice Judaism are, are being consigned to a second-class Status And if for them it's a bridge too far. Gentiles are to be equal with, with us without practicing Judaism. And so at that point, they then dismiss everything that he has said up to that point. As far as they're concerned, it's all discredited. So how do, you, how, you know, how do they do that? How do they explain the Apostle Paul? They don't try to explain him. What they want to do is kill him. He should not be allowed to live, they say in verse 22. So what I want to suggest is this rage is not an uncommon response to the gospel. Why? Because what we say, what we have to say, we say people are sinners. We say that God disapproves of their lifestyle, which for some people is not just a lifestyle, but, a, but an identity. And when we do so, that threatens them and it condemns them. And then we call them to repentance and to surrender to Christ and the proud who are wrapped up in their identity, they are offended by that. And so there's this hostile, angry response. And we need to face this as Christians. And we need to face the fact that the call to Christ is a call to suffer. Somewhere along the spectrum, every believer is going, every, let's put it this way, every faithful believer is going to suffer. The spectrum goes from social rejection to martyrdom. Somewhere along there, if you're a faithful Christian, it's either going to be some kind of social rejection, you're going to be ostracized by the, by the group that you want to belong to, uh, all the way to the other extreme, uh, which, is, which is martyrdom. That's what the Apostle Paul is being told. You need to move on now because this is the kind of thing that's going to happen and this is an unsafe place for you for now. So for now, I'm sending you away. I'm sending you away to the Gentiles. All right, let's go back to the beginning. Christ can convert anyone. How, how, how do we get through to this generation? You know, the ears, they just seem to be closed. Hearts are hard. The, the Christian message is, seems, doesn't seem to be viable. It doesn't seem to be credible today. Uh, to so many of our fellow uh, citizens, our, our fellow countrymen, uh, it lacks plausibility. It doesn't, it doesn't fit in with uh, their, their worldview. And we think that, you know, reaching them is going to be impossible. How, how do we break through? Well, the Apostle Paul himself says his conversion, yes, we've looked at some of the, the unique features of that. Nevertheless, he says of his conversion that it, that it was an example for all time. As a reminder that if God could convert the Apostle Paul in the state of his hostility and can do it in an instant, he can convert anyone. So this is the way he puts it. 1 Timothy 3, verse 13. 
Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Notice there's no hesitation about acknowledging his sin. This is a barrier for people. Nevertheless, it's one that the apostle overcame. It's very difficult for people to say, you know what, I was wrong. I was wrong. I sinned. I committed an offense. It's hard for people to say that. I should not have said what I said. I should not have done what what I did. I should not be living as I am living. It's wrong. It's hard. Apostle Paul, no hesitation whatsoever. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent of the gospel. So what happened? Did God just cast you straight into hell? Oh, no. No, that's that's not what happened. Yet, he says, I received mercy for this reason. Okay, now this is interesting. For this reason. Well, for what reason? That in me, as the foremost chief, the chief sinner in the King James Version, in other words, for me, as the worst of all possible sinners, I'm the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. There's the point. As an example, I was the worst. He displayed his perfect patience and grace and mercy in me, drawing to me to Christ, saving my soul, forgiving my sin, reconciling me with my maker as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So that we can say this morning, there's no one beyond the grace of God. Right? The whole city of Nineveh last week converts. God perseveres with Jonah. As rebellious as he was, he's patient. Grace is amazing. So that's, that's our message this morning. There's no one beyond the grace of God. There's no one beyond the reach of the gospel. Anyone can be saved and reconciled to their maker and receive the forgiveness of sin and know that they have eternal life and they're safe in eternity if they will but turn to Christ. And the reason why we know that that can be true of anyone, no matter how bad, no matter how morally degraded they might be, no matter how in love with their, the idols that they, with which they've surrounded themselves. How do we know that? Because the Apostle Paul was converted. And if God could save him, he can save me. And if God can save him, he can save anyone, any place, any time. And it's, a, it's that conviction that animates us week after week to want to serve him and to reach the world with the gospel. Knowing that as we faithfully do so, casting gospel seeds, that in the end they will bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in the encouragement of the Apostle Paul's conversion. We rejoice in that. Perhaps we're alarmed at this call to suffer. And, and yet we are encouraged. And we think, O oh Lord, of, of those that we know that are hostile, that are in dark, dark places, that are utterly resistant to the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, the message of your grace in Christ. And pray, O oh Lord, that as you 
broke through the hard heart of the apostle, that you would do it again in our day to the multitudes of unbelieving who are around us. In Jesus' name, amen.